Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 490. Uh, today we're going to be doing our first real lecture. Uh, the last lecture, the one you might have heard, was very much a background, kind of remedial, uh, talking about like basics of Christianity, some basic terms. Now we're actually getting to the history. Now we're actually getting to the history. So this might actually be the first one you're hearing in person. Uh, more than likely, though, this will be a second one. Um, but yeah, so we're actually getting into real history now, real history, like hardcore history. So let's get into it. So today is about the colonial times. Today is about the colonial times, kind of early, early um, colonial, you know, early English colonies version of Christianity, uh, kind of your basics. And remember, there are other, you know, Christian groups running around the New World in this time period. I mean, you have the Catholics and the French who are long established, and the Catholic Church is working very closely with both of those uh, nations to really, you know, establish churches of the like in the New World. But today we're talking about the English. Today we're talking about the English. So, important date to remember is 1607. In 1607, that is when Jamestown is established. Uh, Jamestown is the first permanent English settlement within the United, what would become the United States and the New World. Uh, the first permanent long-term settlement for the English is at Jamestown in Virginia. Now, amongst their numbers of the original settlers is a man by the name of Robert Hunt. Uh, Robert Hunt is the first chaplain. He is the first chaplain of Jamestown. He's the first chaplain of Jamestown uh, sent by the um, Anglican Church to work alongside uh, the Virginia Company, you know, to, to make, make, take care of the well-being of the, col of the colonists. Now, about a year later, he's dead. <laughs> now, a year later, he is dead. Now, if you really want to get technical, he is not the first chaplain, uh, English chaplain, within the New World. Uh, that honor actually goes to somebody who came in Roanoke in 1583. Remember, Roanoke was a failed English colony about 20 years before Jamestown, the permanent colony. So, kind of aborted starts for both of those. Kind of aborted starts for both of those. So, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, about 60 years later, in, eight, in 1670... 1670, the Reverend Samuel Danford, who was Harvard-trained, uh, gives a sermon for the opening of the legislative session. He gives a, a, a legislative session. It's opening day. He's giving an opening sermon because there is no separation between church and state. It's very interconnected with each other. The sermon is titled, Aaron into the Wilderness. Aaron into the Wilderness, in which he talks about the very deep roots New England had with as a covenant with God. Uh, basically, he really iterates this idea that uh, New England has entered in, or the English colonies have entered into a covenant relationship with God, and therefore that is going to, you know, ordain pretty much everything else they do. Now, I might have you read a section of it, but um, I can tell you, after you, if you read it, it's a very obtuse sermon. Uh, this is not a very relatable sermon. Now, to be fair, he is talking to the legislatures who are definitely on the upper end of the socioeconomic and particularly education scale within the colonies. So they would be very familiar with biblical concepts because this is a very obtuse sermon. It's incredibly obtuse. Um, to make sense of it, you need to know the Bible pretty well. This is not a very instructive sermon. This is very much a reiteration of things you might have might already believe. Um, the idea of, a, of an instructive, like, hey, let me teach you about the Bible or teach you about your religious beliefs, that's not in per, in, in shown here. Um, honestly, you also have to know a good bit of Greek and Latin to understand it, too. Uh, he gets into some, like, Greek words and Latin terms. And this really pushes this type of mentality, uh, this type of very early American, early colonial, um, you know, the elite of the elite are part of the church group, and it's a very um, closed-off group. You know, he he's... He is, Danforth is very clear that he is talking to a very elite group. Now, to be fair, he is talking to an elite group. That's not his ordinary everyday sermon. But the fact that, you know, the, the, the elite of society, those who are involved in the legislature, are really framing uh, their ideas around, oh, we have a religious reason to do this. Now, does this mean that, like, they're genuinely devout, uh, as we're going to get into? That's a much more complicated question. But the fact that they even felt the need to steep themselves in this idea that, um, you know, we're doing this because of God really tells you more about their psyche. And it's interesting, these two groups, you know, the Jamestown group and the, uh, the, the Plymouth group, if you want to call it that, they kind of form the basis of what we call American identity and thought. 
when it comes to religion. Now, I am well aware there are a lot others. There are a lot aware that there are a lot others. Uh, but for today's class, I, I kind of like this idea that this kind of tension between prophets and prophets, prophets with a PH and prophets with an F, you know, money and religion, kind of forms a, a, a an early tension within the U.S. development. Now, it's very rudimentary. It's very, it, you would be stereotyping or overglossing it to say like, well, the people in Jamestown were only interested in money and those those frozen chosen up in New England, they're just a bunch of religious folks. And that, you know, that's what, you know, those in the South are the ones who are mainly concerned about money and those in the North are mainly concerned about God. Uh, that is an oversimplification if there ever was one. I mean, plenty of people in Virginia were concerned about religious matters and likewise, Everybody was interested in making some money, but just know that there is a tension, and it can be reflected in different ways. But that kind of tension between the, you know, the ethereal "oh God, let us do this" versus "eh, we're doing it for some cash" is a real tension you see throughout the U.S. history. So let's get into the Anglicans for a second. The Anglicans make up most of the uh, official religion of the New World, and by the time we get to the English forays into the New World, the Church of England has been around for about seventy years or so. It's been around for about seventy years. Um, not really long enough to be, like, too established. I mean, they, they have some ideas they've somewhat established. They've been around the block for a while. I mean, 70 years is, you know, that's it, not a spring chicken. It, you know, it's not new. But uh, definitely not long enough to be super established. They're kind of uh, really trying to frame their own idea, identity, uh, figuring out what they're going to be and what are they going to look like. Now, you know, early on, the Church of England, the England Church, keeps a lot of the old Catholic ideals, a lot of old Catholic rituals. Um, in time, this has changed. They kind of become less and less Catholic and more, quote-unquote, English. Uh, but that's too many for some people. Some people think that, you know, any remnants of Catholicism is too much within the Church of England. Um, the key word for that is pure, because that's where the Puritans come through. Uh, the Puritans, they are people who want the England Church to be even less like the Church of um, the Catholics, they become more, quote-unquote, pure. This idea that Catholicism had tainted Christianity, and the best thing the Church of England to do is like go whole hog against any remnants of Catholicism. Now, these groups are definitely being persecuted in England, all right? Puritans, this is, we're talking still pre, this is pre-Glorious Revolution, pre-Cromwell. Um, yeah, the, the Puritans are definitely a minority. They're definitely religious dissidents. They're definitely being persecuted against. Um, they're claimed for not following the law. Some people find them to be just very annoying. They're, they're kind of seen as like the fun police, that sort of idea that, you know, oh my gosh, the um, security of England as a whole depends upon the morality of our individuals. And, uh, you know, if we're not being, you know, for not being thrifty or too busy like drinking or going to Shakespeare's plays, it's yeah. I'd say a lot of people didn't like him for being quote unquote annoying, and so that kind of is an idea you're going to get, particularly when they come over to America within the Plymouth Colony. But just know that the Puritans are running around England. They are being persecuted, definitely being persecuted against. Some of them do flee England, as we're going to get into. But let's just go back to the Anglicans for a second. So the Anglican Church. In general, I, I would say their main concern, particularly in the New World, the Anglican Church in the New World, their main concern is the faith and well-being of the colonist. Kind of this religious backing, making sure that they're, you know, they're taken care of on a, a spiritual basis. Um, we're going to get into why they're so concerned about spirituality. Uh, conversion is not that high of a of a of, 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 of a goal there. Um, it's not a major element of emphasis. I mean, the Catholic Church, particularly when you talk about things like the French and the Spanish, uh, they put much more emphasis upon converting the Native Americans. Uh, they, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying the English were against it, but they don't have this amount of onus that they do. Um, it, it, you know, the, getting getting Native Americans converted was, was, was great. They, they liked the idea behind it, but it wasn't as emphasized as they were other, as it was in other places. Now, the reason why they're really interested about the spiritual, you know, life or, you know, ondoing of the of the colonists, and I cannot iterate this uh, highly enough for pretty much anything about the early colonies, mortality is super high. Like, super, 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 super high. Like, people died. Like, a lot of people died. Everybody died. 
And so if you're that surrounded by death, if death is a constant reality, if just like, you know, you're dying and remember, they don't really understand germ theory back then. They don't understand, um, you know, how viruses or whatever work. And so, and not even into the spiritual dimension of like, oh, we're demons, you know, making you die or whatever. We're just getting into just the sheer fact that everybody is dying for limited reasons, it looks like. You're going to want to make sure that like, you know, Somebody is close to God to make sure we can figure out, you know, are you going to heaven to deal with the afterlife? With with mortality that high, with people dying left and right, it only makes sense that on a very practical level, you're going to want to have somebody dealing with the hereafter, dealing with death. Like, so much of early Jamestown is just mere survival, which really gets into their faith. Like, this is not a faith of... Um, Relaxation. This is not a faith of, of plenty, of excess, of stability. This is a faith of just like, oh God, we go to church and try not to die. And, you know, whenever somebody inevitably dies, um, you call the priest. And when the priest inevitably dies, uh, call the Church of England to send another one at some point. Um, so I, I should also mention that, like, going to the New World, at least early on, is an appointment by the Anglican Church. It's not something that was really chosen uh, per se. Uh, by the by, the various uh, chaplains. So oftentimes they were assigned. You know, so it was a it was an appointment, not a choice. Now, what do they preach on? What do they preach on? We actually don't really know too much about what the Jamestown people are preaching about. We do know they do preach. Uh, for instance, Richard Buck. Richard Buck is the second chaplain at Jamestown. He actually lives for quite a while. Uh, he stays there for about thirty years or so. So he's a uh, he, he does pretty well in Jamestown. He he lives for quite a while. Uh, Richard Buck, uh, basically his charge, basically part of his contract for going to Jamestown, was uh, leading prayers twice a day. So leading prayers twice a day, probably something from the Common Book of Prayer, uh, just kind of doing like, a, I don't want to even say a devotional, but like a very short, hey, we're going to lead prayers at morning and night, that type of shtick, and also preaching on Thursday and Saturday. So basically he is supposed to preach on Thursday and Saturday. Um, interesting they don't mention Sunday, but there we go. Uh, we do know, however, even though we don't know the content of his sermons, we do know that people thought he was a pretty good preacher. Uh, most notably, John Rolfe. John Rolfe, who's the guy who saved Jamestown. Uh, Rolfe once wrote that basically, hey, you know, that, that Richard Buck guy is a pretty good preacher. Uh, we do know that Buck does pretty well in his, um, in his life in Jamestown and later Virginia. Um, as time went on, he would begin opening Virginia assemblies. He would be opening Virginia assemblies, so akin to what uh, Danforth does later in Massachusetts. Uh, Buck would also open the Virginia assemblies in prayer with hopefully shorter prayers than what, Dan- what Danforth did, which is like a two-hour-long sermon. Uh, and also, one of his uh, one of Buck's sons is a member of the House of Burgess. Uh, one of his sons is a member of the House of Burgesses, which is the uh, legislative body within the Virginia colony. So it shows that, you know, not only does he survive, he does pretty well in the area. And uh, his son and other members of the family do, too. Now, we, like I said, we don't really have full sermons from Buck, but we do know, for instance, um, he does mention, pray, so let's preach on this idea of the great work at this plantation. So basically he's saying, like, you know, we're, we're here to do a good work here. Uh, God has brought us here to this plantation, kind of linking the money-making and God's, you know, holy desire for people, that sort of shtick. Because you really need to make no mistake, um, Jamestown and Virginia are money-making enterprises. You know, yes, I said they, they're not just solely concerned with this, but uh, let's be real here. They are interested in making some money. So, for instance, uh, as part of the original contract, um, Hunt, so Robert Hunt, the first guy, who was a chaplain, was expected to keep his own house. He was expected to keep his own house, have his own, you know, have his own estate, uh, and have his own servants and slaves, basically provide for it for himself. Uh, this is not a single vocation minister, all right? This is not a single vocation minister. Uh, maybe y'all might be familiar with that. Um, a single vocation minister is somebody whose sole job is ministering, preaching. So priests generally don't have outside jobs. Uh, I think pretty much all priests are, that is their sole vocation, is being a preacher, um, a lot of larger churches have this sort of single vocation preacher where you have the senior pastor or whatever, and that is their one and only job. They, they teach on Sunday, they preach on Sundays, and then they're expected to do things throughout the week, mainly visiting people and um, you know ministering with a lowercase m. Uh, some of your smaller churches, you're going to have a bivocational ministers, which is 
you know, you, you have your regular day job, and then on Sundays you preach. And that is definitely what the case is in Jamestown. Uh, these are people who are ministering to the individuals of Jamestown, but they are also in the money-making themselves. They are not doing it separately. It's just not practical to have somebody whose sole job is preaching in this time period. Now, this cash, you know, cash desire is filtering through everything in Jamestown. Like, it's not just supposed to be self-sustaining. You know, just making enough to, like, make yourself live was not enough for Jamestown. They need to make a ton of money, which it later does thanks to tobacco. Now, I do want to mention, uh, in 1619, a year before the Pilgrims come to Plymouth Rock, the first slaves come to Jamestown. The first slaves come to Jamestown. Plymouth Rock is 1620. 1619, the first slaves come to Jamestown. Um, it's a very complicated story. I'm not going to get into it in this class. Maybe take um, African American history with Dr. McQueenie for it. Uh, but basically, these are like stolen slaves. <laughs> basically, these are basically a group of pirates had like robbed a slave ship and they didn't want to have the cargo, so they basically tried to sell them to Jamestown. Um, not that many were sold. I, I should mention that there weren't too many slaves in Virginia yet. Uh, the real onus for a lot more slaves and a lot more African Americans come to the New World. Uh, it comes later, mainly because slavery was not seen as very practical. Slavery was not seen as very practical, uh, particularly with mortality rates being so high and also the price of a slave. Uh, the price of a slave was quite expensive as compared to something like an indentured servant. And um, you know, a slave you get for life, an indentured servant you're only getting for like seven years or so. But they both have similar mortality rates, so you're probably not going to get that much labor out of either one of them, so why spend that much money? I know it's a horrible way to talk about human beings, as well it should be, because slavery is an abomination. I, I don't like slavery or anything like that, but you have to think about economically why they might go through that. So let's talk more about Puritans in England, all right? Let's talk about Puritans in England. Now we're actually going to get into some of their theology. Uh, Puritans are a very divisive group. They're a very, very divisive group in this time period. Uh, most people hate them if they're not Puritan. If you are Puritan, you, you love them. I don't think anybody is really medium about Puritans in this time period. Uh, defined negatively, they want to remove all elements of the Roman Catholic Church from England. If you're defining them negatively, basically saying what they're not, is basically they don't want anything that's Catholic within the Church of England. Now, if you want to define them positively... Um, or how they might try to define themselves, they would say, no, 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 no. We want a, England to finish the promise of the Reformation. They said basically England, you know, has, the Reformation had started. This idea that, you know, you're going to give God to the common person. The common man is now the real authority for God, uh, with God. You know, it's not just getting rid of the Catholic Church, but really, I hate to use this word, but democratizing religion, democratizing Christianity. We should finish that promise. We should go even further. Now, what are some basic beliefs? Now, as I said before, this is not a this is not a theology class, but I, I do want to mention what are some basic beliefs? Basic beliefs that uh, that Puritans have. Well, a big one is they believe in the total depravity of man. Uh, depravity of man is a very Calvinist thing to believe. Uh, very akin to Calvin in that regard. Basically, total depravity means basically all humankind is worthless. All humankind is worthless. Um, all, all mankind has sinned, um, all, you know, man has no ability to do anything right or good, it's all God. Uh, they need to be saved solely by God's choosing. So that kind of gets into predestination. The idea that God has pre-chosen you, only God can save you from hellfire or, you know, from your own sins because man is totally depraved, totally depraved, totally awful. That said, though, uh, they do believe that there needs to be some moment of conversion. There needs to be some moment of conversion, uh, some moment whenever God's grace is revealed unto you, and basically um, the human being's, you know, the, the gift of God is recognized within the human being. Uh, so you're not exactly predestined from birth. Now, if you want to get technical, I guess you're predestined from birth. But they don't believe, like, you know, babies or children or whatever are inherently, like, going to heaven necessarily. There needs to be a solid moment of conversion. Now, a second thing they do believe in, they believe in the centrality of the Bible. Uh, Sola Scriptura is something that Martin Luther really pushes. Uh, this idea that basically the Bible is the mandated what you need to go with for your life. Not church tradition, not uh, whatever, you know, not ritual. It's all about the Bible itself. Now, the Puritans believe that Christians should do only what is explicitly stated within the Bible. Like, the only way that Christians should do things is stuff that is explicitly stated in the Bible. 
Now, this is opposed to Luther. Luther said that Christians should only do what was prohibited by the Bible. So basically, if the Bible says you shouldn't do it, don't do it. But if the Bible doesn't say anything, you should or shouldn't do it, yeah, go ahead and do it. As long as it's not against anything in the Bible, go ahead, go nuts. Whereas the Puritans generally believe you should only do the things that are explicitly stated in the Bible. Now, I bet you're wondering, do they keep kosher? Oh, God, no. They don't keep kosher. Nobody keeps kosher. But just basically, like, you know, um, with activities or, you know, you know how, you, how you keep your days. Um, Luther's like, hey, you know, there might be anything wrong with, like, you know, I don't know, going to a, I can't say going to a movie, but going to a play or something like that. Uh, whereas the Puritans are like, no, 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 unless it says you can go to a play, don't go to a play. That sort of shtick. Now, the, uh, the Puritans also feel that the Bible wants them to have a very congregational big meeting group, okay? Uh, they basically want to meet as a congregation, meet together, big meeting group. Uh, they want it to work in conjunction with the government. They don't really believe in a separation of church and state. Basically that, you know, you should have this congregation that, you know, tries to tell you, not tries to tell you, but basically shows how you need to act. And that acts in conjunction with the government, okay? You know, basically trying to reform... Reform behavior of the society for everybody. They believe that's why how law should work in the government. It's this idea that we should enforce a legal standard of morality, which is something you see quite a bit in American history. Uh, another big thing that Puritans believe they believe, and this is something you know you kind of see in that, is that society is a unified whole. Okay, they don't believe in division between like church and state or the personal and public. Uh, they believe that basically all society is one giant body. So, you know, the way your neighbor acts actually does impact you. It's not like, oh, well, my neighbor doesn't do this, and that doesn't impact more immorality or my society whatsoever, you know, live and let live, kind of libertarian ideal. Uh, the Puritans believe, no, 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 there is no division, you know. Everybody and everyone needs to act in a certain manner, okay? Everybody has to act in a certain manner. Everybody needs to act in the same way. Do not differ from this, because if you do, you are not just looking bad on yourself. You are, you are threatening all of society. Now, for its detractors, that can be viewed as very cold and heavy-handed. Very cold, very heavy-handed. This idea of the frozen chosen is a name you often hear. This idea that they are just like, you know, unemotional, unfun people. Now, that's a negative way of viewing it, but if you want to view them kind of positively, you can say that's actually pretty compatible with democracy. This is the idea that everybody is equal. You know, the ordinary person is just as religious and capable as the elites in charge. The idea that, like, anybody's behavior could be damaging, it's weird to say it, but that could actually be viewed as democratic. The idea that everybody is equal and the idea that, you know, the rich and the poor need to have the same sort of morality, that's actually somewhat democratic. Uh, a fourth and final belief that is kind of important for what you get into when it gets to um, the religion is they believe that God enters into covenants and solemn agreements to get his will done. They're very big on covenants, okay? Uh, they don't believe that God's going to act outside of the church or Christianity. They believe that basically God said, you know, whenever God told Abraham back in the book of Genesis that, you know, You'll be, I will be your God and you will be my people. Basically, this idea that God said, I am not going to do anything else through anybody else ever. This is, this is my one and only, this is my chosen. And so basically, they say, you know, if God gets into an agreement or if you enter into a covenant with God, that is binding. That is binding on both ends, for God and man. And so basically, that's the way that God acts on earth. They believe that God acts solely through covenants and solemn agreements to get his will done. God's not going to act outside of the church. God's not going to act outside of Christianity. He's not going to act outside of it. Uh, and nor is he going to favor or do anything nice for people not in this covenant. They think that people are who aren't in the covenant, whenever bad things happen to them, eh, it's for the best because that's what God said to do. So, for instance, they don't necessarily see any real humanity within Native Americans. They, they look at Native Americans. They're like, okay, they're clearly in a lowered state. Um, it's clearly that, you know, they are not Christian, so ergo God does not care for them, because if he did, he they would be Christian and they'd be in agreement with them. This kind of becomes known as the city on the hill mindset. England, uh, the city on the hill, England, and later on the America, actually it really gets big in America, was seen as, for the Puritans, was God's shining beacon to the world. For the Puritans, they believe that England and later on America, particularly America, was God's shining beacon. 
a place where you know God would share His divine providence, place it on this, and place it for these individuals, a, a special people that you know God has ordained or you know entered into a covenant with that will show them and show the world these are the people that I have chosen. This really gets seen in modern day American exceptionalism. Uh, American exceptionalism is the idea that America is somewhat special that God or providence or whatever has divinely or just miraculously or somehow America is set apart and is more special, better, whatever you want to do it, than all the other countries. Now, the Puritans ultimately leave for the New World once it becomes evident that England won't be reforming any further. Um, you know, Basically, once it becomes pretty obvious that England is not going to be reforming any further, um, they say we should leave. I mean, a lot of Puritans debate whether or not to go to the New World. Even Cromwell had this debate. But those who did go may not have been, like, super devout at first. Um, rather, most of the people who go with them are the ones who are like, okay, I'm okay with this sort of structured society. You do have people who join some of the early colonies, the early Pur- uh, early Puritan comedy- colonies, who are not, like, super Puritan, but the leadership was. The leadership was super Puritan, and the membership are people who are okay with it. Um, I liken it to, like, people who teach at a religious school. Nichols is a state school, but suppose, um, you, you, I mean, let, suppose I got a job at Notre Dame or something. I got a job at Notre Dame. Uh, that's a you know very large Catholic school, or Loyola. That's another Catholic school in New Orleans. Actually, a better example, Loyola. Um, you know, the leadership of Loyola is super Catholic. Now, everybody who teaches there or goes there may not be very Catholic, but they're okay with it. They're okay with living and under working and going to school under a Catholic structure, even if they're not that Catholic themselves. That's what you need to think about a lot of the early Puritan uh, colonies of the United States. So like I said, uh, Jamestown comes around in 1607, first permanent settlement, following a few aborted attempts. Like I said, um, wasn't totally secular, but it really wasn't as devout as later settlements in Massachusetts. Uh, just devout in the, like, the pious, very structured, rigid uh, standard of the word. Uh, Virginia's laws, I mean, they do have a lot of moral elements to it. Um, Virginia's laws, they, they mandate attendance at, um, at religious services. Uh, they forbid, it forbids adultery. It also uh, forbids immodest dress. Uh, and like I said, even though this wasn't a huge point of emphasis for Jamestown, um, they are trying to convert some Native Americans, or at least say they are, as evidenced by uh, John Rolfe's marriage to Pocahontas. Uh, Pocahontas was the daughter of Powhatan, and she, uh, yeah, she, she really, you know, how she gets converted uh, might just be out of force. It might have been more of a kidnapping, but still, uh, she is converted. She marries John Rolfe. And that's seen as kind of a boom for the area, the city, that that is more of a religious, humanitarian element of their colony. And as I said, the, the Anglican Church was the official church of the colony. Um, the, the presence of tobacco and chattel slavery, though, makes it quite different than the New England colonies. So it's not, as, it's not against religion, but nowhere near as supportive or raptured as Plymouth would be. Now, Plymouth is the second really big settlement um, in the New World. And, uh, yeah, that's, that'd be the Pilgrims. That'd be the Pilgrims who are a subset of Puritans. Uh, they're a subset of Puritans who are actually even more pious than Puritans are. Uh, they've been kind of trying to do their own separate thing for quite a while. They've been trying to do their own separate thing for quite a while. Um, after James I, uh, King James, you know, King James Bible, that guy, after he doesn't go as hardcore Puritan as they were hoping, whenever he becomes king, uh, a congregation of these pilgrims flee to the Netherlands. They flee to the Netherlands, and when they get to the Netherlands, they discover that they find the Netherlands uh, a little bit too... Lo- not loosey-goosey, but... Uh, they did not like the fact that they, you know, like, oh my God, you know, the, the Netherlands aren't that super Puritan, but also it's very tolerant. Like they were welcomed and not persecuted in the Netherlands, but also they were expected to accept a lot of other things. There's also this idea that, you know, they started getting together with some of these Dutch, um, kind of their predecessors to, uh, to the Amish or Midianites. Uh, they're, they're all around the Netherlands. And so there's some idea about them getting mixed up with them. Uh, they also say that they're kind of afraid of their children getting too enraptured with the, with the with the Dutch way of life. So they decide, you know what, we should probably go somewhere else. They should probably go somewhere else, and they actually start contracting with English co- companies that want workers for the New World. They're really looking for workers, and so the you know the, the Pilgrims kind of get involved with this. 
Um, they, they do get off ultimately in Cape Cod. They ultimately get up in Cape, Cape Cod. Uh, the middle of the Mayflower, not all of them are pilgrims. They sign what's called the Mayflower Compact, which is kind of this one of these contracts. Uh, they promise to work together, sort of like a covenant with God. It's very, very into Puritan ideology. Once they get there, um, it's very, very tough. Mortality is very, very high. Uh, William Bradford was the first real governor of, uh, of this colony, and he dies early on. Uh, by 1630, though, 1630, so about 10 years afterwards, um, the colony is still small, only about 300 people, but it's profitable enough. It's nowhere near the money grab that someplace like Jamestown is, but they're, they're able to cover their expenses and make some money for the original shareholders. It also has way more women than uh, the Virginia colonies do. That's one thing that um, kind of links the English colonies together is they tend to have more white English women than other places. A lot less intermarriage in English colonies than in uh, Spanish or particularly French colonies. So we'll get into that later. Uh, Very communal in terms of worship. Very communal. This kind of continuity between the the public and the private. The idea that you don't mess around with, um, you know, one's individual home life was viewed as, you know, as central to one's public life. There's no disconnect between the two. And as they become more, um, as they, as they start living longer and as you know, the, the colony becomes more and more successful, they really start pushing their beliefs as the reason why it continued to persist. They really start pushing this idea that it's because of Puritanism and their religious belief why they're able to live so long and why their colony is, I don't want to say successful, but surviving. And their continued survival actually seems to give credibility to their claims. The fact that, you know, theoretically, I mean, granted, you know, Massachusetts is a good bit south of, you know, England, but still, you know, they're, they're in the frozen north, it's cold, and they're, they're, they're doing okay. They're doing all right. That seems to be the, the best, uh, best case scenario for them. So it's kind of interesting, if we're getting into Puritan life and faith in America, like, despite the existence of New France and Spain and Virginia and kind of these, you know, southern English colonies, the Puritan mindset of New England really dominated the perception of America's religious past for a very long time. Um, It's kind of been changing now, but, like, even whenever I was a kid, whenever I was a kid, they rarely have ever talked about Virginia, like, at all at all. Being, you know, the early Jamestown being the earliest colony, it was all about the pilgrims, kind of like, you know, the buckle shoe version of history, um, you know, Thanksgiving, uh, God's reason to do this. You know, they came to America for religious reasons, and that's why they're, that's why America was based upon religious background, that sort of stuff behind that. Now, why is that the case? A couple reasons. Number one, there are a lot of dominant personalities in New England. There's a lot of dominant personalities in New England. Uh, they are the ones who actually care about keeping records. They care more about keeping records in a place like the southern parts. Um, they take a lot of notes. They take a lot of notes, and they also write a lot of books. They also print a lot of books, a lot of these early religious leaders. Uh, they're also very, very heavily involved in the government of the colonies. So way more than their Virginia clerical counterparts. Now, I'm not saying Virginia clerics didn't care about the government. They did. I'm not saying that Virginia's uh, government doesn't care a good bit about religion. Oh, it does. I'm just saying it's way more intertwined in New England. And so that also has records as well. The fact that you have people who already are taking a lot of notes, printing a lot of materials, and now they're getting involved in government, which if you don't know anything about government, it's very big on keeping all sorts of records. It makes a lot of sense why they had become dominant. Not just that, Boston, which is a key part of this whole, you know, New England area, becomes a key early education center. Still to this day, there's a lot of schools that are in Boston. And so, like, all these schools that are in Boston, most of them are modeled around Puritan principles, at least in this time period. And so, of course, you're going to get this ideology. I mean, the first, the first college in New England is Harvard, and Harvard, uh, that's what, it's 1638? And then William and Mary, the first one in Virginia, that doesn't come till eight, uh, 1693. So we're talking about like a 60-year head start for uh, Boston to really like become ingrained as the education center and also really most prominently put this religious Puritan way of mindset as the centrality for American belief. And like I said, it becomes so dominant that all Americans, and honestly the perception of this belief, they have to recognize and reconcile with this for some way. Like, until relatively recently, 
like we're talking 1930s and when we for for academics and to the general public maybe the 1960 sorry 1980s or 90s um, it was said that the puritan morality provided the basis for the US's continued success this idea that like old school puritan principles are the reason why america became successful in the first place and stayed successful or sometimes those who were against it said it was the boogeyman that needed to be exercised in order for the US to reach real greatness you know get away from our puritan roots Regardless if you were in favor or against it, you could not deny that it was the standard upon which all their belief systems in the United States had to expand it, explain themselves. And honestly, it does expand to a lot of other different beliefs as well. So Puritanism was most dominant in four American colonies. If we're talking about the four American colonies that are really most steeped in Puritanism, uh, Plymouth, which we're talking about, the Plymouth Colony, Pilgrimism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the second is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Massachusetts Bay Colony that got absorbed, actually absorbed Plymouth in 1691. Uh, then you have New Haven. Uh, New Haven, which was founded in 1638, probably the most strict form of Puritan society. Um, we might think of the Pilgrims or whatever as like being the most strict, you know, no fun having um, Puritans around. Actually, as Connecticut. Uh, sorry, New Haven. New Haven, which does later on get Connecticut, uh, absorbed by Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut uh, was formed in 1636 by the Reverend Thomas Hooker. Uh, takes settlers from Massachusetts and near Hartford. Uh, New Haven was absorbed by Connecticut in 1662. So there's kind of Massachusetts, Connecticut colonies. They're the ones that are most really shaped by Puritanism. And honestly, of those two, it's Massachusetts by far. Massachusetts sets the standard for most of the other New England colonies and honestly, most of the American religious psyche. Um, Bo- uh, not Boston. Well, Boston's the biggest city in Massachusetts, but Massachusetts was the biggest of the New England colonies, and it has most of the government and church training there. Most of the schools are in Boston or something. A lot of the government training, you know, becoming learning to become a lawyer, that sort of um, background is based in Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts in general places a much higher emphasis upon conversion. Uh, upon conversion in order to become a full member of the church and society. That is a key term there. Full member. Because only full members, like we're talking like converted, uh, confirmed, uh, baptized, well, they don't, they generally do infant baptism, but like, you know, in the church, confirmed to the church, your character is vouched for, they were the only people who were allowed to vote. I'll repeat that. The only people who were allowed to vote in Massachusetts were full members of the church. Okay? Only those who are full members of the church. And remember, there's this like kind of connection between the social and the uh, and the personal. The idea that there is no continuity between your personal... Sorry, there is a, nothing but continuity between your private life and your public life. So not only is being an active church member the only way to get franchisement, to get the right to vote... The only way to keep that right to vote is to remain in good standing with the church. To remain in good standing with the church was the only way to keep your enfranchisement, to be able to keep your right to vote. So it's not just, okay, hey, I, I go to this church, you know, I, I join the church, and now that I'm in, I don't have to go back anymore. It's continued membership, continued um, right action. You know, well, what they deem to be right action, you know, continued morality to show that God is still you know, acting favorably upon one's life. Now, I, I should mention women. Uh, women get more rights in New England than in England. A lot of that has to do with mora- mortality. But they were still not considered full citizens to the same level as men. So, like, you know, they were not allowed to vote. They got more rights in the New World than they did in the Old World, but still, they were definitely not full citizens. Uh, they were not expected to do anything in the political sphere, but they were expected to go to church. Um, even though women were not allowed to be, you know, full voting members of the church, they're expected to go to church, they're expected to learn church stuff, they're expected to impart their religiosity onto their children, absolutely. Uh, church leaders often held sway over legal magistrates. I, I should mention that too. Legal magistrates, judges, whatever you want to call them. Generally, the church had sway over them. And oftentimes these magistrates or these judges, they would not go to their law books. They would go to the preachers for legal advice. Basically like, hey, I've got this ruling coming up. Um, what do I do about you know, promoting religion with my rulings? You know, The idea that the, the preacher is the one who's really seen as the authority. And these are congregationalists. I, I should mention, these are, not, these are not Anglicans, all right? They are pretty dead set about the fact that they are not Anglicans. They think the Anglican church is too Catholic. 
these are individuals that are chosen by the church. And the way you get chosen is by having this type of morality and that the entire area, you know, speaks for you, vouches for you. So it does tend to be quite elitist. Uh, a good a good example of this is John Winthrop. Uh, John Winthrop is the governor of Massachusetts through most of his early existence. Uh, basically, he is the governor of Massachusetts for quite a long time. And under his rule, under his governorship, church membership grows tremendously. Church membership grows um, um, tremendously. Um, yeah, church attendance was mandatory for all healthy individuals. Unless you're sick, you were expected to go to church. As did the colony size itself. You know, so not only are people going to church, they're also joining the colony. They think that things are going pretty okay there. Like I said, the church in New England, it does separate themselves from the Anglican church in a way. Um, yes, dissenters always threaten to call the crown on the Puritans, basically. Um, the dissenters, people who don't like the way that the Puritans were doing things, well, I'd say, like, hey, we're going to get the Church of England in here or call the crown because you're breaking the, um, the original contracts you might have made. Uh, but nobody really seems to make a fuss because it always seems effective and, more importantly, profitable. Um, if the Massachusetts, and remember, the Massachusetts colony was not super profitable, but profitable enough that it kept the shareholders happy. Um, if it ever became like very unprofitable, I have no doubt that those dissenters might have had um, ears that would listen to them more in England when they talked more about the fact that the Anglicans are not really in control over there. Now, under Winthrop, uh, what what Massachusetts implements is something called the Cambridge Platform. They adopt the Cambridge Platform in 1648. Uh, that's done under Winthrop. and basically sets out what the government should look like. Basically, this ideal government, what a government should look like. And basically, the church plays a very central role. The church plays a very central role in pretty much all forms of this government. And it's very clear that this colony is a Christian colony. And not just a Christian colony, a certain type of Christian. A very beyond, you know, they definitely have very low opinion of Catholics. But uh, beyond your Anglican church, it's a very Christian colony with no separation between church and state. Um, long element of continuity between the personal life and the private life. Now, achieve their goals, the Puritans put a big emphasis upon education. As I mentioned earlier, in 1638, a young minister by the name of John Harvard left a library of 400 books to make a new school. Basically, it's like, hey, uh, I'm, you know, I've collected some stuff over the years. I'm going to leave 400 books uh, for a new school that two years earlier had been established by the Massachusetts legislature. So basically, two years earlier, in 1636, um, Massachusetts legislature said, hey, we need to put some funds together so we could make a new school. Uh, John Harvard basically was like, hey, I have 400 books. We can use this to be the basis of the library. The main purpose for Harvard, at least early on, was to train ministers. That is basically the, the legislature said, hey, we need more ministers. You know, We need to have people trained here in the colonies, not having to go back to England, to get good, proper, quote-unquote, training, learn their Bible super well, kind of like a seminary. We need to do it really well. And by God, we're going to do that. Uh, John Harvard's like, you know what? That's a pretty good idea. I'm going to give you 400 books because books are kind of hard to come by. And that's why they get the name of it. Now, you have to remember, this is decades before the first college in Virginia. The first college in Virginia is William & Mary, 1693. That's about 60 years later. So, like, that's multiple generations of not just preachers, but thinkers, educators. It's this very strong emphasis placed upon education, reading the Bible, reading the Bible properly, in order to instruct through all of society. Because, remember, they think that the whole of society needs to be on the same page religiously. Uh, likewise, in 1642, the uh, Massachusetts legislature mandated that all children need to be educated to read, all right, and understand religion and the law. And if a town does not provide for a child's education, you know, basically for them to become literate, understand religion and the law, uh, towns can be fined. Like, uh, if a town does not have this, it would have, it could be fined. Actually, it's interesting because in 1647, so just five years later, uh, they passed the, and I love this name, I love this name, the Old Deluder Satan Bill. The Old Deluder, O-U-L-D, Old Deluder Satan, basically says that all towns over 50 households have to appoint and pay for a teacher. All right, this is crazy for the time period. We're talking like 1650. They basically said all towns over 50 households, which is pretty much the entirety of New England, 
uh, they have to not just you know have an education system, not just have a schoolhouse, but pay for it as well. This is like universal education for everybody. They it's not just the rich; it's it's everybody in this town. They believe there has to be a level of continuity for all levels of it. So this actually gives New England the interesting distinction of being one of the most literate places in the world in this time period, from top to bottom. New England is super literate. And that's like really reflecting the fact that we have so much written by them. Uh, so much of the early stuff we have from the colonies of this time period is because not just religious stuff, even though that's a lot of it, but like even ordinary folks are writing stuff because they really push, you know, education. Now, granted, is it the most full education? No. Does it go on for like high school level? No. But the fact that like everybody learns how to read and, you know, kind of understand the Bible and understand the law, it's a pretty big deal. Even women. Like, women were allowed to write. Women were allowed to, like, have literary societies. So you actually have this large correspondence of women with other women in New England in levels, not just the rich women, which, you know, you have in various places on, you know, in, in, in England, but, like, poor and middle-class women. They're often writing each other, and they have a lot of literary activities and literary societies, which is quite remarkable for this time period. The fact that you have multiple female poets in and around New England. Um, generally, the Puritans don't think too much about like music or like writing songs or novels, but they thought that poetry was something that, you know, it's decent creative expression. And so they, you know, a lot of these women are like, hey, we're going to start writing some like very religious poems. But the fact that you have women writing anything in this time period, particularly poor women or middle class women, very remarkable. Now, the heart of the New England Puritan life is the church house. Weekly gathering for worship in the church was the highlight, that's the heart. New England Puritan life was centered around the church building. The meeting house, as they called it, was always the biggest and certainly the most centrally located building in town. The central location for pretty much all of these New England towns, maybe you've been to a New England town yourself, uh, these smaller New England towns, it's this meeting house. It's this large, not just a church building, not just something for like church, but almost like a community center. Basically, it's it's where everything was done in a lot of these smaller New England towns. It's usually the biggest building, always the most centrally located. Maybe you've seen like the, the town square type of thing, where the church is always right there, probably next to the courthouse type of shtick. So what do they do during these? Well, uh, the first thing they would often do is sing the psalms. Sing the psalms usually unaccompanied by music. Um, early on, music was viewed as somewhat suspect, so they would kind of like chant the psalms, I guess. They would kind of repeat psalms in kind of a, a sing-songy, chanty way. Um, over time, music kind of softens. They kind of say like, okay, maybe we could start maybe, you know, singing it really, not just, you know, kind of chanting it a cappella. Um, maybe we can bring in some instruments for here or there to like, you know, maybe make it a little bit better, it's, you know, maybe an organ or something. Uh, and also later on, they would begin composing more of their own songs. They'd have more of their own songs that are really, uh, that are really, you know, I mean, they, you might know some of them if you go to like a really old church or something. Maybe the ones your great grandparents go to, but um, you have these type of songs that are out there. And it softens in time, but the central focus for all of these for all of these worship services was the sermon. Um, Really, more than anything else, I mean, other churches might, you know, really emphasize, like, rituals, like, you know, the Eucharist or uh, the reading of the Bible type of thing. Um, most of the time, though, for New England church, the sermon was the big one. Uh, the, the sermon was the big one. Uh, you have two types of sermons. You have two types of sermons. Uh, you have the regular sermon. The regular sermon, uh, that was preached twice on Sundays. Twice on Sunday was the regular sermon. Uh, occasional sermons were usually given at certain times. Certain times were the occasional sermons. Uh, when are, you know, special occasions. What are these occasions? Well, we mentioned one with Samuel Danford. Um, election, uh, sorry, election day is one. Political is what I'm really iterating with, uh, Aaron to the Wilderness. Uh, the first meeting of legislatures, feast day, fast days, which are called often on during the year. Usually you would have um, occasional sermons for that. So most of the published sermons we have evidence of, like Aaron of the Wilderness, they're occasional sermons. So most of the sermons that we have published are 
the occasional you know special events. We don't have that many records of regular sermons. Uh, they were given though, and from we can gather, they don't change very much um, from like the inception in 1607 to like the verge of the American Revolution in 1776. So it's it's remarkable we have that level of continuity of a sermon. Um, particularly for the regular sermons. Like your average everyday sermon, like your regular Sunday sermon, didn't change very much at all over 150 years, which is quite remarkable. Particularly when we get into the more modern stuff in in, uh, Christian history, well, the history of Christianity within the United States, where, I mean, different decades could be radically different. So uh, what are some of the central themes in these sermons? What are some central themes in these sermons? Uh, the central theme for a lot of them is the Bible is the only successful source of sermon themes. Like, you only talk about the Bible, you only talk about biblical stuff, um, no folksy wisdom, no current events. I mean, depending on your, particularly in Protestant circles, um, the pastor might start out with like a little anecdote about like, I don't know, something going on in the news or maybe a story from history type of thing, maybe give some folksy wisdom. It's kind of like a Joel Olstein type, sort of like they really try to get for this very you know, personable, you know, make you laugh, make you think. I mean, I know I've heard some sermons which are like stand-up comedy routines. Not these. Not these. These are pretty much you only talk about the Bible and that's it. You don't bring in any examples from anywhere else. If you want to bring in an example, you bring it in from the Bible. You don't bring it from modern events, you don't bring it into like, you know, folksy wisdom, whatever, you go straight Bible. Uh, the basic, basic like theme, basic, you know, thing that was really repeated over and over. All have sinned and need divine salvation. All have sinned, need divine salvation. How does God provide salvation? Through grace and only through his mercy. Okay, saved sinners must serve God by following his law. So really not much on the human. Pretty much kind of reiterating that total depravity. Um, You know, basically once you get saved, just obey. That's all you're really supposed to do. Um, You're a horrible person and just keep obeying. That's sort of a shtick. Uh, when we talk about the regular sermons, they do talk a little bit more about grace from time to time, basically God's grace on the individual, the fact that God rightfully gives grace. Um, the national sermons, though, the ones that are published, we really see more focus placed upon that idea of the uh, covenants, of uh, the national covenants, those occasional sermons. They really push this idea that, like, you know, God um, has, a, has a covenant with these people, with, the, with America, in order to keep the covenant, in order to keep God's blessing, we must remain pious. We must keep up our end of the bargain because God will never keep up, sorry, God will never not hold up his end of the bargain unless we don't hold up our end of the bargain. Does that make sense? Like, God isn't capable of violating the covenant, but he will, you know, if we violate the covenant by sinning and not being a good, pious people and not having continuity between the, you know, between our personal and private lives, uh, God will no longer have his grace shed upon the America. That sort of shtick. Now, the sermon is the dominant form of communication in New England, and honestly, most of our basis of history for the region comes from these sermons. Uh, They do have other records, of course, but, like, if you want to talk about, like, what are the ordinary person thinking, um, outside of, like, court proceedings, nothing else is published. Like, really, not much else is published in New England other than court proceedings. Like, not a lot of newspapers. You don't have newspapers. They found them frivolous. Very little outside books, um, very little books are being published other than religion or other than like published sermons. You do have some correspondence between various people, but that's not public stuff. That's more like private. So if you want to understand more about like what society as a whole was or how people as a society as a whole really pushed this, like you're looking at these sermons, we're looking at these sermons. And these sermons are long. These sermons are very, very long. Uh, Generally, they are read. They are not orated or spoken. Uh, They are read. Um, Maybe you've heard different sermon elements. You have some pastors who just have like little note cards. Uh, Some have like a little iPad. Um, It's, you know, better example, it's it's a professor's lecture. It's a professor's lecture. Um, Yeah, actually, that's, that's a pretty good comparison. Lectures are very similar to sermons. There's a lot of different ways you can give a lecture. Um, I typically have a PowerPoint. Sorry, I usually have a PowerPoint. Not only that, I usually have like little bullet points on my notes. I usually have notes. That's not everything I'm going to say. Um, I've seen some professors who have no notes whatsoever. Sometimes, depending on the topic, I can go no notes. Usually, I like to have some sort of a note, though, uh, to really keep things uh, going on. 
uh, you know, mainly for your benefit that I have an outline because I can go on some crazy diatribes. Uh, but you do have some who, you know, some who lecture by straight reading, straight reading. Now, that may not be everybody's preferred uh, method of, of lectures for a college professor. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Uh, but yes, these sermons were all written and read. And why were they written? Well, most of these sermons were about two hours long. They're about two hours long. Now, maybe at your church, if the, ser- if the pa- sermon goes over for 30 minutes, people get mad because they can't get to Piccadilly in time. But this is a two-hour sermon. This is a two-hour sermon. And the average New Englander heard about 7,000 of these sermons throughout their lifetime. Like, this is something that was regularly heard in New England churches. Like, if you're hearing this twice a week, you're hearing regular sermons twice a week, you know, twice on Sunday, you get two two-hour-long sermons. That's four hours of sermons a day. Like, that's a lot. That's quite a bit of sermons you're going to hear. Not to mention the occasional sermon, which is going to be like at a feast day or something, or it's election day. You're going to hear another two-hour sermon, which is even more dense and esoteric. I I should also mention that. Uh, These are very dense sermons. Uh, Aaron in the Wilderness is not unusual in the fact that it's very um, erudite, I guess you'd call it. Very intellectual. instructive in the sense that you need to know things about it already. This is not one where the pastor is trying to relate to you on your level. It's you need to build yourself up to the pastor's level so you can understand it. Now, changes in sermons, whenever they do occur, like during the Great Awakening, they demonstrate a drastic change in society as a whole. Because you got to remember, most of these regular sermons don't change. I mean, even without the Great Awakening, we're talking, you know, 1730, 1740s, the Great Awakening. So that's over 100 years where sermons do not change all that much, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So aside from the dissenters, all right, because people do dissent, the main opponent of Puritanism was actually time itself. Uh, with a passage of the time, more people grow up and they don't want to be baptized into the faith or live inside all the strict rules. So, like, this kind of puts the leadership in a very precarious position. They do want to keep the church pure. They want to keep the church pure. They want to, you know, keep it from outside influence. They want to keep it, like, very pious and devout. But they also want to reach a pretty large number, all right? They want to, like, have a very big reach. They want to be able to continue their influence upon the colony you know, you, as time went on and more people become braver and more, not braver, yeah, I guess braver, more willing to live in defiance of like not going to church or like live outside of this or maybe establish their own colony, uh, the church still wants to have this influence over the political affairs of the colony and societal affairs too. So they really start pushing, you know, how do we not compromise our values but kind of reach? And the kind of compromise they come up with is what's called halfway membership where basically babies could be baptized into the church and have, like, some of the rights, not full membership, not full rights, but you have some of the rights, but also not be expected to follow all the rituals. Not be expected to be follow all the rituals, but, like, make sure your kid gets, you know, baptized, uh, you know, so you could still be on the church rolls, they could still have the church influence, but maybe not do as much of this. The bigger detriment, though, was King Philip's War. King's Philip War and other conflicts with the Native Americans really, really, really kind of changed the self-rule that most of these early colonies have. Um, In 1685, James II, who was a Catholic, revoked parts of the New England Charter that put them under the direct control of the crown in the new dominion of New England. This goes with New Jersey and New York. Uh, Mainly, this is done by James II to undermine the super-Protestant sects in control. Remember, the Puritans are very much anti-Catholic. They're super Protestant. And so James II, who's a Catholic, is like, you know what? Um, I don't like these people in the first place, so I'm going to get rid of some of their um, you know, free will and control they've been able to have. Earlier monarchs was as long as the money's coming in. We don't really care who's in charge of that. Uh, James II is like, nah, we're going to get rid of this. Uh, that said, though, when James II was deposed and William and Mary come to the crown, the interesting thing is, though, even though William and Mary come to the crown, they are Protestant, they do keep their provision that the crown is going to choose the governor. They basically say, hey, you're still a royal colony. We're not going to keep doing this whole the governor is chosen by the membership slash church. Uh, you could call it democratic if you want. I wouldn't. But basically, basically, William and Mary said, look, we're going to keep it the crown chooses the governor. You know, you, you, can, you can still be as, you know, Puritan as you want. But we're no longer having you have sole control over the leadership and the government. 
Now, this new leadership, this new direct control leadership, uh, breaks a lot of the religious laws and also says, hey, maybe church attendance isn't mandatory for, like, full membership um, in the government. Uh, this is seen by the religious leadership, the Puritan leadership, as, like, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. And this kind of gets into 1692. You know it. I'm not going to talk that much about it because you probably know enough about it. The Salem Witch Trials. Uh, the Salem Witch Trials, look, there have been witch trials before throughout the world. There have been witch trials in America. However, there's a new sense of urgency because the Puritan leadership was indeed losing power. You know, the fact that you have the fact that the crown has taken away the, their ability to rule pretty much unchallenged, uh, you know, it's, it seems evidence is, oh no, the society is becoming more secular and, uh, you know, the, the crown is taking rid of, getting rid of this. Oh, the, the defiant frozen chosen, we, are, we need to fight hard against this. We, we need to keep what power we have. The, the, you know, you've probably heard the numbers about the number who were killed or whatever. That's not even that high for witch trials. It's really no worse than other witch trials. It was, however, a stain on the Puritan leadership. Basically, the Puritans get blamed for a lot of this, even though there was a lot of popular elements of it, a lot of, you know, hysteria from the common folks. And honestly, most of the Puritan leadership, most of the judges were the ones who were, like, being more level-headed about it, maybe not taking, you know, spectral evidence into, into play or wanting more evidence than just, oh, I see a devil flying around the sky. Uh, regardless, their, their reputation never recovers. Uh, a lot of it is the English and also the more secular people who didn't agree with the colony in the first place but just went along with it because it seemed to be a profitable place to be. That gets changed. So we're kind of going to end that there. Um, you know, think about the, the tension between the prophets and the prophets, you know, prophets with an F, prophets with a PH. Um, you know, this idea that this errand into the wilderness, the fact that they've gone for a little bit, now becomes like a lifeline. Like, okay, we need to keep with this. And also, mortality does go down. You need to understand for all these things, once mortality goes down, the sense of urgency leaves as well. And so, I think the sandwich trials is a good place to stop just for today. Uh, next class, we're going to get into some other colonial stuff, particularly some of the dissenters, some of the dissenters and those who go against uh, the Anglican way. But with that, Dr. Tully for History uh, 490, wishing you a good one.